podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. This episode of the DNF1 F1 podcast is sponsored by Lucy Camp and Jewelry. If you love handcrafted jewelry, or perhaps you're looking for a gift for a friend or a relative or a loved one, maybe, or maybe just to treat yourself, there's a sale going on right now at Lucy Camp and Jewelry that will cater to your needs and allow you to support a good cause in the process. So let me tell you the plan. 28 different pieces by 28th of May, each costing £28 each, with 28% of all profits being donated to the NHS. All of the pieces will be available from the 28th of May 2020. Keep your eyes peeled for your favourites. These are one-of-a-kind pieces. It's your chance to grab a totally unique piece of jewellery as a gift for yourself, a friend or perhaps a special loved one in your life. All jewellery are handcrafted from recycled sterling silver and reclaimed gemstones. You'll be able to see the full variety of all jewellery on lucycampandjewellery.com. And remember, this offer is only available while stocks last, so don't delay. Head over to www.lucycampandjewellery to buy your piece of 28. You can also follow her on Instagram and Facebook to find more great offers and more great jewellery from Lucy Camp and Jewellery. Welcome to another episode of the DNF1 F1 podcast. As always, I'm your host, Adam Burns, and joining me once again is my co-host, Courtney Pine. Courtney, how are you doing this evening? I'm doing great, mate. Probably the best I've been in a very long time. I don't know about you, but I'm feeling good about things right now. Yeah, I'll say I'm feeling pretty good things about the moment. Um, I mean, today for me, I went out and played golf earlier, so it's the first time I was able to sort of get out and do something that you can do that's recreational. And uh, yeah, I'm not going to lie, it was a beautiful day for it and I really enjoyed it. How about you? I've done some farming. I moved I moved some pigs around. So yeah, I, I, I could have uh, I could have had it much worse, to be honest. Quite, <laughs> quite a, uh, well, particularly in the morning, it was um, quite productive, shall we say. So I'm happy. Oh, well, that's good then. It's always good to be productive, especially now at the moment. But yeah. I'm really enjoying these good positive vibes at the moment, um, feeling good and all that, so hopefully that can continue. So, in this episode, it's going to be a little bit different to what we do in other episodes. We haven't really had one of these big debates um, regarding certain drivers or certain situations. I think it's something that I'd enjoy doing a bit more in future episodes. But given the current news surrounding Sebastian Vettel a couple of weeks ago, as we know from previous episodes and news that... He is no longer going to be at Ferrari post-2020 when his current contract ends. And the decision of his next move, if there is going to be a next move, of course, there may be the option he may retire, um, at this time is not known to us yet. And with all the rumours aside um, and speculation about where that may be, it's important to look back and reflect on his current time at Ferrari. Um, and, and of course, let's not forget that he still has another year, so this may change. But ultimately, I think the question needs to be asked. And is the Vettel-Ferrari partnership, um, is that successful or was it not successful? Um, Courtney, I understand you put out a Instagram poll for this, if you want to talk about that a little bit more. Yeah, I'd be more than happy to. So yeah, I, I, put, out, um, I put out a little poll last night. And um, 
Yeah, I asked a very um, question Adam just asked, and that was, has Vettel um, been a success at Ferrari? And uh, much to my interest, I must say, it was um, a 50-50 result. 50% of you feel that, you know, he, he has been successful, and uh, 50% of you feel that he hasn't. So that's really interesting, because I'll be honest with you, I'm actually not surprised to see that that argument is split right down the middle or at least that opinion um, of our audience and followers are voted in that way because you can look at it in different ways of what was successful about Ferrari's partnership with Vettel and also what was unsuccessful I mean ultimately Courtney um, I'm not sure if you're of the same opinion of me actually I'm probably actually now I say that I'm probably certain that you and I are of the same opinion that the Ferrari Vettel partnership wasn't a success ultimately and the simplest reason I can I can say that um, is because it never delivered a world championship. Well, yeah, and, and that's, um, you know, I, I, I got some feedback on the page, actually. Um, you know, someone said that to me, those exact words, that, you know, you know when you race for a team like Ferrari, success is, um, you know, it's judged based on world championships. But my, my personal opinion on it, um, I must say that the, the most I'd say the most unfortunate thing about Vettel's time at Ferrari was timing because there's a big there's a big elephant in the room when it comes to reflecting on Vettel's time at Ferrari and that is uh, Mercedes AMG Patronus who have gone on to be one of the most successful teams in Formula 1 history and to be honest looking if you look at the beginning of his Ferrari career he'd done a fantastic job getting results with that team they had no right to because Mercedes were winning truly dominant at that time. Yeah, no, I absolutely agree with that. The well-oiled machine, if you like, um, of Mercedes-Hamilton, that combination Mm. was so strong for so many years, and it still is to this day, of course, with no Formula 1 at the moment. It's a bit hard to say how that will go this year, but... Since the turbo hybrid era, when Vettel had joined Ferrari in 2015, Mercedes have been on a completely different planet to everyone else in terms of their strength, their reliability, their trust, their knowledge, their their expertise, their ability to recover from a seemingly difficult position where questions have to be asked of people. And every single time that's been uh, a, a current or they've been under the cost they've been able to respond in the best way possible so that yeah. any dip in form is temporary pun you know pardon I, I, the pun I, I, I feel that um, I feel that Mercedes as a team almost had a uh, a Saiyan like approach to life they'd get knocked down but they'd come back stronger absolutely I I had to throw some Dragon Balling for you, Adam. I know you're a fan. Oh, yeah. I'm, I'm, Mercedes are no st- strangers to an old Zenkai boost every now and then, are they? <laughs> it's almost like it's like Krillin when he goes hacks. Like I'm calling hacks on this one. And it, it literally is like that with Mercedes. But I think coming back to Vettel, I mean, we're talking about a guy that since he joined Ferrari in 2015, bear in mind this will be his sixth season um, when it does eventually get underway. And he's competed in 102 races, 14 victories, 54 podiums, impressively, 12 pole positions and 15 fastest laps. On the on the cusp, it doesn't look like, or on the surface, I should say, it doesn't look like a bad record. But the one telling figure and statistic is zero world championships. That's and that's the, the one that people will focus on the most. And rightly so. 
But to say that it's 100% Vettel bottling it or not delivering expectations or not being Schumacher 2.0 as Luca de Montezemolo thought he would be or the chosen one, if you like, it was so much more... Uh, it's not as cut and dry as that. It's not as black and white as saying Sebastian bottled it. There were so many things that yeah. really affected this relationship. And if anything, you could argue that it was doomed before Vettel would put on the red jacket or the red race suit. You know, I mean, one example of this, I think we should talk about, is, were the issues and changes in senior management um, at yeah. Ferrari. And this is why I say that there's the potential that this dream died before it was even envisioned. And, you know, it's no secret that back in 2014, obviously Ferrari were reeling from the lack of success in their 2014 car. Fernando Alonso was... It was an embarrassing season for them. Yeah, Fernando Alonso was, you know, struggling and he was not happy with the team. The car wasn't good. Um, the relationship between Fernando Alonso and Luca de Montezemolo in particular was was strained at the best of times. And Fernando Alonso was very open in his criticism for the Ferrari car. I mean, Luca de Montezemolo went out and said that uh, Alonso was constantly complaining about the car and claiming that he would win on a more regular basis if he was in either a Red Bull or a Mercedes. And these kind of quotes and statements that Alonso was making was heavily demotivating and demoralising for Ferrari personnel who was working... Obviously, they were working very, very hard, but they weren't able to deliver the level of success that they had done in the Schumacher years or even the Raikkonen and Massey years in 07 and 08. Since the 2009 season, Ferrari had never bad. really recovered. Um, That's, yeah... You know, because there's, there's, there's been a common theme, hasn't there, since, well, 2009, you had, you know, the, the Braun just came out of nowhere, you know, done incredible things at the start of the season. Then you had the, the Red Bull, you know, this new team came along and had a, you know, well, the, the stats say it all, you know, four bowl championships back to back. And then... Another, another, another team, Sadies, have just gone and done something similar, if not a lot more. So, there's, 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 there's been a reoccurring problem for Ferrari in the last, what, 10 years or so now? Well, I think the big thing that they were missing was the fact that they weren't really technically brave in terms of their development. Now, mm. for those of you that won't aren't sure what I mean by that, I just want to reference something that I pulled out in an, in an earlier episode that we were talking about <laughs> Um, when Courtney was talking about one of his favourite cars, the uh, Braun 001. And this was in uh, one of our favourite car episodes, Courtney, if you remember, that came out about a month ago. Of course I do. So if you haven't if you haven't listened to that, check that out. It's a good one as well. It's a really good one. And the Braun 001, for example, was a car that in 2009, there were the regulations came out about using the kinetic energy recovery system. And the Braun 001 car was one of the few cars that, didn't use this system. It wasn't mandatory. And instead of carrying that extra 30 kilogram weight, um, which gave them the benefit of six seconds energy boost if they wanted it, they foregone that and decided to apply uh, ballast at the front end of the car, which obviously gave it more speed in the corners over that and more control under braking, which worked out to be more of a pace advantage than running around than carrying a 30 kilo battery that gave them uh, a boost of around 80 brake horsepower for six, seven seconds over the course of the lap. And 
Ferrari were one of the teams that didn't adopt this. They also didn't adopt the double diffuser system that Braun did so well. And it's it's sometimes this attitude that Ferrari had where they weren't willing to take the risks with technical development. They weren't willing to be brave with their design. And there was a heavy influence from senior management that and political powers at Ferrari that put pressure on them to deliver almost to the point where it kind of restricted their innovation. They were well, too, yeah, they were too, we've, yeah. We've, We've discussed this when, when it comes to Ferrari many times, where the, the the politics are you know are much more a thing of Ferrari compared to any other team. They are almost a national institution in Italy. The pressure on not only the drivers but the team and the management is massively intense compared to any other team in the sport, and it always be that way. And unless there's there's a culture change, and you know, if if you have a look at the Schumacher era, they had they had a team in place that seemed to you know be able to alleviate that pressure. Mm, they, and, they did, yeah. Yeah, and to you know they they got the right people in the right places to you know take the pressure off them and use use that that pressure into something positive. And you know, as you know about them, Jesus, this is your this is your favourite era of all time. So I don't need to give you the. Uh, the stats and stuff because well you know so <laughs> well this is the thing i mean senior management as we mentioned before is really important especially at ferrari given the nature that they exist they have that political environment which can influence what the team does which is almost unheard of in formula one but it's completely unique to ferrari because that's how they've always operated whether that's they've right. been successful or not um, I mean, the numbers will always suggest that Ferrari's way of working is the best because they've been the most successful. But then one could argue that, well, perhaps that's because they've been in it long enough where they've had more opportunity to win championships. Whereas a team like Mercedes, by contrast, have not, or even Red Bull, and have had massive success when you think, relatively speaking, to how long they've been in the sport yeah. as proportionate, as a proportion. So, you know, there is that element. I mean, Vettel himself was heavily endorsed by Michael Schumacher as to be the next young driver to join Ferrari and be successful. No, no but yeah, no, no, no pressure, Seb. <laughs> you know, having, having arguably the best driver of all the time endorse you. Exactly. No pressure. Exactly. So, uh, and in 2014, when this was um, a reality, there was a performance clause in Vettel's contract with Red Bull which made him available in 2014 because he wasn't performing well so obviously if he wasn't in a position where he was competing for a championship it allowed him to break away from his contract early and Ferrari exploited this which is why they swooped in for him to replace Alonso when their partnership abruptly ended when he signed for McLaren and it was at a point where Luca di Montezemolo completely lost all faith and that Alonso was the right man to take Ferrari forward of course Alonso came very close in 2010 and 2012 in cars that shouldn't have been anywhere near the driver's championship and yet he almost won and probably should have in 2010 and I think Ferrari needed someone like Vettel at the time Um, it was the perfect signing to have this guy was a four-time world champion of course it wasn't his best year in 2014 he wanted to seek a new adventure a new challenge and the dream of Ferrari that was sold to him under uh, under the uh, former technical boss uh, Marco Mattiacci who had negotiated Vettel's contract the dream w- between him uh, Mattiacci and Luca di Montezemolo would, would be similar partnership um, that John Todd, Ross Braun and Michael Schumacher had which was so successful at Ferrari however 
the big problem is that even before Vettel had turned a wheel at Ferrari, things had changed in senior management. Um, Mattiacci was released um, after eight months at Ferrari. Luca de Montezemolo was ousted out and on a corporate level by Sergio Marchione. And Sergio Marchione had brought in Maurizio Eva Bene, who had installed an environment where he would carry out all of Marchione's instructions or tactics without any yeah. argument. It literally was um, an Emperor Darth Vader relationship. Where he would literally issue, yeah, he'd literally issue out the orders from the top level, and Vader or Arriva Bene, if you like, would just carry out the orders without question and just do it, regardless of how it would affect others or even conflict in his own personal um, thoughts on the subject. I mean, Marchione, you know, a very shrewd businessman, you know, very good at a corporate level, but in terms of running a Formula One team. Um, evidence had shown that he was not the right man and a strict atmosphere where you're not really yeah. promoting trust and responsibility in your team leaders and your personnel below, beneath you um, w- was never going to work. And it's something that do Mercedes... Feel, do you feel that his, his management style reflected the pressure on Ferrari at the time, considering the amount of time they'd gone without... A, you know, a real, you know, a, a proper success story. You know, they hadn't won a, um, a driver's champion, um, well, driver's championship since 2007 or a constructors' title since 2008. And I feel, and I do, I feel that the the, the, the management and behaviour by Marchione, um but did, did reflect the sentiment within the within the Ferrari as a company and the fan base. Yeah, I, I think that's a very good point. I totally agree with this. And I think there are a couple of examples in which you can show how quickly these things sort of changed. I mean, for, for one example, this is where Ferrari weren't were so strict under uh, Marchione's watch with Arriva Bene at the helm. Yeah. Um, it really, it was an environment where you couldn't promote that trust element. You couldn't promote that responsibility in the team where... Uh, you know they had that freedom to go out and be brave on a technical level you know from a design perspective really go out and try and chase performance and go after it they never had that freedom and one person in particular that I can look at as an example of how this really worked when they went to another team was James Allison James Allison at Lotus I mean and he worked under Ferrari in the past as well when he was at Lotus as the chief designer did a fantastic job um, reinvigorating Lotus as one of the top teams in the field. Of course, Kimi Raikkonen famously won races in Australia and Abu Dhabi back in uh, 2013 for Lotus. Do you, feel, do, you, do you feel that you know the um, the departure of James Ellison did play a part in you know the, the struggles, shall we say, at the you know at the start of Vettel's Ferrari career? Because you know. Let's let's um, you know look back to the beginning of 2015, and you know he, he got he got that win in Malaysia, you know, be it partly through you know tactics, but there was there, there was a, there was a feeling with James Allison there that Ferrari are back. Now I know we've heard this many times, but you can't deny that you know we we know that he left for personal reasons, but we can't you can't forget that. You know, losing James Allison, you know, a man of his talent, as you just state, but particularly at the time when they were just really, they really felt like they could mount a challenge on Ferrari. That that must have played a part, you know, in, you know, shall we say, 
I lost the morale within the team at the time. I think with James Allison, uh, and the point I was going to make, I was making with him was that um, it was the inhibitions, the lack of freedom and responsibility yeah. that he had. I mean, another character as well, Stefano Domenicali, um, who was team principal at Ferrari up until 2014 when he replaced John Todd in 2008. And he and he wasn't yeah. able to ultimately be successful. And, and we're talking about him and him in particular and Matty actually very good lieutenant-like pe- power, uh, people at the team, but they weren't empowered. There was very much a physical ceiling to their levels of responsibility within the team, mm-hmm. which were ultimately governed and um, run um, on an operational level by senior management. Senior management was very much ever-present in the Ferrari team. And in the years of Schumacher and Tot and Braun, this was never a thing. And the lack of a tight structured foundation within the Ferrari team under Vettel when he first joined, it was, you couldn't have, have had a less suited um, atmosphere or collaboration with a driver like Vettel who is intelligent, reflective and almost independent. He can just operate on his own. He doesn't need the team to run everything for him. He just needs That's the right. team to be free to do their job um, and put their arm around him when they need it in the way that was so successful at Red Bull. Vettel wanted to create that environment at Ferrari that worked so well for him at Red Bull, but he just ultimately was not allowed to do this under Riva Bene as a team principal. Um, and this did change under Binotto and uh, Lu- uh, Louis Camilleri in 2019. But as we saw, previous mistakes uh, under pressure from Vettel in 2017 and 2018 had kind of created an atmosphere where Ferrari was starting to lose faith in Vettel and Vettel was starting to lose faith in Ferrari. So the relationship was too far fractured. Yeah, it was a two-way thing. You know, so yeah, and, and and this was the and this was a problem for Ferrari. Senior management was too involved, and it just didn't allow Ferrari to operate with that freedom. With the James Allison thing, going back to that that we were talking about earlier, um, despite the personal reasons for him leaving Ferrari, and of course that you know that should never bear any um, reflection on the Ferrari team or even on James Allison post that switch. But as soon as he went to Mercedes, it was apparent that we now saw a man who was so strong and so highly regarded at Lotus, free from those shackles at Ferrari that was curbing and hindering his innovation and technical bravery to now join a team that ultimately empowered him with everything that he needed and trusted him and kept him happy to work in an environment with strong, capable people that trusted him to deliver the results and deliver a car that could win races and win championships year after year and at the hands of Lewis Hamilton and even Nico Rosberg to a large degree. um, Well, the results were there. The proof is in the pudding on that one. You saw that firsthand. Because, you know... For 2017, 2017, 18, and 19, you know, obviously the the whole team played their parts. But in in my in my humble opinion, I think I, I, look, I look at James Anderson as playing a big part in those um, championship winning cars massively, without a doubt. He did, yeah, because uh, yeah. They, because the the overall package of the car had gone from just being, you know, having a good engine. That that was that was a big part of what made Mercedes so dominant but actually in it's become more and more apparent in you know the years where Alison's had more of a part in the concept of the car it has become a lot more dominant 
in areas where it wasn't, you know, in slow corners and stuff like that, where actually Mercedes used to struggle. Mm. And there's a lot of good reasons for this. I mean, we talked about the technical innovations, um, which we will draw on later on in this episode. I think it's worth noting. So, I mean, one thing I want to talk about next. So we've mentioned senior management, obviously, the impact that they had in this Vettel partnership, which really hindered it from the start. In a way, you can argue that it was doomed before Vettel had even put on a red suit or turned a wheel at Ferrari. It was that such a huge swift in power. And I want to talk about this on another level. We mentioned Michael Schumacher. We mentioned his heavy endorsement of Sebastian Vettel. What was so strong about him in that partnership with Jean Todd and Ross Braun that made it so successful in the early 2000s. And in a way, we can kind of um, nail this down to a what Schumacher had that Sebastian Vettel didn't have as to why the Vettel-Ferrari dream, in our opinion, failed. And, of course, before we go any further on this, I think it's worth pointing out that when we say what Schumacher had that Vettel did, we are not talking about talent. We're not talking about ability as a driver. I think we can both agree that even though Sebastian Vettel um, didn't win as many world championships or races or was successful against um, high-caliber drivers in the same degree that Schumacher was, we can both agree that those two are definitely considered up in the upper echelons of the all-time greats. Um, The stats don't lie, Adam. No, absolutely. And um, so we're not talking about talent in this regard, although there is a case you can make that, you know, Schumacher was better than Vettel, you know, absolutely, but... In, for the purpose of this debate, we're not going to mention talent in this. So, when sh- so just to take us back to 1996, when Michael Schumacher, a two-time world champion, had joined Ferrari. Jean Todd uh, was the team principal at Ferrari at the time, um, now the head of the FIA. He, he did an amazing thing by keeping senior management away from the Formula 1 team. So, obviously, we talked about how senior management have really much become involved in the inner workings of the team since around 2008, you can argue, um, and even more so under Sergio Marchionne in 2015. Um, the senior management and the politics of Ferrari was never really um, controlling. It never had a controlling stake in the Ferrari Formula One team. And this became even more apparent when Ross Braun had joined them a year later in '97. Him, Schumacher and Jean Todd had formed a pact, almost like a holy trinity of Ferrari, if you like. An to, alliance. Yeah, an alliance, yeah, absolutely, to yeah. protect one another from being picked off individually by the political powers at Ferrari. So Ferrari's always operated a culture where they've always looked at their failings and looked at where they've come unstuck or where they've underachieved and tried to put the blame in one specific area or look at where their weak points are and rather try to address these areas with trust and nurture it and learn lessons so they can move forward. They've favoured more the option of put the head on the chopping block and then just swipe away and bring someone else in who can do a better job, which you and I both know, Courtney, that even at, in within our own capacity as fans, that that's not really... Um, that's not really a tactic that inspires confidence and uh, res- and you know promotes uh, innovation and freedom and responsibility. It's almost a it's it's fear. It almost strikes fear. fear. And, and and you know we're 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 no uh, we're no F one managers, but we can all relate on a human level that if you are feeling under pressure or you know in a state of fear you're more likely to underperform or make mistakes. Yeah. 
and that that is absolutely true. And that's something we saw at Ferrari a lot over the years. It's something that absolutely. during the Schumacher era, yes, mistakes were made. Of course, everybody makes mistakes, but they were never happened as frequently or to a level or to a degree that they do now or even back then and even if they did it was like Mercedes it was okay we take these lessons we learn from it we come back next week and we go and dominate and that's exactly what Ferrari did there were very very few occasions where they come up short but whenever they did it wasn't for very long um, until the end of that partnership of course but going back to this uh, alliance between Todd Schumacher and Braun if corporate management had an issue with one of these guys they had an issue with all of them the three of them would join together to stop Ferrari trying to pick them off one by one. For example, if there was an issue with Todd's leadership, Schumacher and Braun would in turn stop them from being able to pick him off. Or if there was a problem with Schumacher's driving, you know, unlikely. But the other two would galvanise the team and get behind them to stop Schumacher from being yeah. targeted. This was, the, uh, this was the atmosphere at Ferrari and it worked to their credit keeping senior management away and letting the team go about their business and trust their experts, it made them untouchable, not just on the grid, but in the paddock as well. These guys were, it was like the golden years of a rock band touring around the world or the Beatles or the Rolling Stones. You know, everything that they did, every genre that they touched just turned to gold. And for six years, from 99 to 2004, they won six Constructors' Championships and five drivers' titles. Of course, Schumacher in 99 had broken his legs. He wasn't able to mount a challenge, but Eddie Irvine nearly won the championship. And you can argue that Schumacher, if he hadn't got injured, probably would have won that championship as well. Yeah. Ultimately, was won by Mika Hakkinen and McLaren. Um, you know, very worthy champion in his own right, but that car was so good that... Of course, in 2000, it was no surprise that Ferrari finally broke their duct of 21 years when Jody Schechter had last won it in 79. Um, but despite how successful this partnership was at Ferrari, this trio, if you like, it wasn't like this when Vettel joined. Obviously, Todd and Braun were long gone and in their place were more homegrown loyal lieutenant-like characters like Stefano Domenicali and Marco Mattiacci who had signed Vettel and negotiated his contract. They were very, as I mentioned before, these guys were very good people in their field, but they weren't empowered like Todd and Braun before them. And, and this always, as we said before, this always created this physical ceiling and limiter or inhibitor to their responsibilities and freedom. And senior management was calling the shots all the time. So... It might have looked from the outside in that these guys were weak or they weren't as strong or Ferrari were looking for the next Jean Todd or Ross Braun, but they couldn't find it after bringing in so many people and then firing them unceremoniously. But the truth was, these guys were not given their wings to sort of fly and, and expand and explore and take risks. Ferrari yeah, become very cautious. Almost, look, looking from the, you know, from the outside as, as a fan of you know, other teams... Ferrari did at one point look like a circus. Yeah. That's how they looked. Yeah, and you're absolutely right. I mean, we, we also mentioned this earlier in the episode. When Marchioni had replaced him on in 2015, he'd hired Maurizio Riva Bene as team principal. And as we said before, Marchioni was very strict. Riva Bene had practically carried out all his orders without any question of this. And we said that this was not the sort of tight structured foundation that Ferrari needed to build a great F1 team um, upon where trust and stability was the key. 
Ferrari were literally hiring and firing almost 12 months apart. If they were unsuccessful, they'd look at specific areas where they come unstuck. And rather than try and entrust and empower these experts, their personnel to get it right and give them the time to really build up an F1 car over years, sometimes it can take a few years. Even during the Todd Braun Schumacher years, it took Ferrari four years of that partnership before eventually they won a world championship. So, well, that's what happened. Well, that's what happened at um, that's what happened at Mercedes, you know. Yes. Yeah. When, when, um, when Ross Braun first approached Lewis back in what 2012. Yes. He, you know, he the reason why Lewis joined in the first place is that you know Braun almost promised him, you know, we're we're building something bigger here. We're not going to be instantly successful. You know, in, you know, in stats wise, 2013 was probably Lewis's. Weakest, um, weakest season. So there's a lot of people, including myself, you know, questioning why he left McLaren. And then, bang, 2014, hybrid era, there were talks of Mercedes were going to be good, but didn't realise they were going to be that good. And he said probably the same thing happened with Schumacher. But with Ferrari, you know, I think looking from Vettel's perspective, he must have looked on thinking, okay, both me on the personal level and Ferrari. We both want the new era. You know, he had his success at Red Bull and Ferrari had their previous successes, but we're both not the level that we want or used to be. And we can get there. But from, as you mentioned, with, with the politics, very soon into his time at Ferrari, he wasn't getting what he needed. Yeah, and you're absolutely right. I mean, with the aggressive axis of Marchione and Arriva Bene, um, you couldn't have a less suited collective persona to work effectively Mm. with someone like Sebastian Vettel and Sebastian Vettel was sold this idea by Marco Mattiacci and Luca Di Montezemolo who referred to Vettel as the chosen one very often after his endorsements by Schumacher himself Vettel still tried to get the team to work around him as he felt he needed to the way that he did at Red Bull which was ultimately successful for him for four world championships um, however, senior management at Ferrari had a very different tactic to this. They were not encouraging the idea of building the team around a driver like Sebastian. Um, in fact, Mauricio Arriva Bene had even gone out personally and in public to say that the driver should focus more on driving the car and less on, than on trying to run the team. Basically noting Sebastian Vettel trying to get too involved in the team's workings rather than just doing his primary role, which was drive the car. Now, when I heard this, I was shocked because obviously when I'd grown up watching Michael Schumacher do so well, I knew that all the great drivers needed the backing of their team and the inner workings to work in their favour to work around them to bring the best out of them. We've seen that. Every world champion has had that. That's the one thing they've all had in common. Vettel himself, Courtney, was privately seething about this. We never saw it in public, but we knew in the background he was really angry about Arriva Bene's comments, especially coming from uh, senior management of Ferrari. And it became very apparent to him that this Ferrari team was not the team he was sold on by De Montezemolo and Mattiacci. And now that we look back on it, it never really was after that either. It never would be for him. Um... As we mentioned before, this aggressive access of Marchione and Arriva Bene could have hardly been less suited to Vettel, and it literally made it impossible for him to form the Michael Schumacher-like bond relationship with the team that he had envisaged. I mean, 
there's been plenty of stories about Michael Schumacher in the past where he even went as far as remembering not only the names and lifestyle of all the personnel that worked at Ferrari in his garage, but he also took time to remember the names of their family members. So that wow. when he talked to them, he talked to them all personally. He yeah. would ask them how their family is, how's you know, your son or your daughter. Like He'd mention them by name and talk to them for a while to get to know them because these guys ultimately were the people that would be the difference between him winning a world championship and not. And it doesn't matter how good you are. If you don't have the car to win a world championship or at least put in a uh, put yourself in contention for it, you're never going to win. And Schumacher, well, would, you know... There's a well-known saying, Adam, and that is every successful person, you know, is made from a, a strong group of people around them. Yeah, absolutely. And and they were paramount to Schumacher's success. I mean, one mm-hmm. one example of this, and this is actually, it's a bit of a tearjerker almost because of the background music as well. But there's a really nice tribute video on YouTube where after Schumacher retires from Formula 1 in 2006, the first time, they did a lap of honour round uh, Monza where Massa was there, Rubens Barrichello was there, Eddie Irvine, who were the Schumacher's three teammates in his Ferrari career. And they did one lap around Monza. They just went round slowly with loads of Ferrari fans and Tifosa were all there. And then when they returned to the garage, Schumacher gets out of his car and literally hugs every and embraces every single mechanic that he's worked with, team boss, uh, Luca de Montezemolo, Ross Braun, Jean Todd, every single one of them. And you can see it's not one of those like, oh, you're just casually shaking hands, like you see Susan from accounting or something you don't know much about, you know of her, and that's it. Like, mm-hmm. literally, Schumacher would take the time to personally embrace every single person that played, even though it may have been a small part, they all played a role, a key one, in helping him and Ferrari be so successful. And this is something I'd imagine that perhaps Sebastian wanted to have. And he was never really able to have this um, under Marchione and Arriva Bene. Of course, so many things changed. The sad death of Marchione, the sudden one in 2018, definitely put wheels into motion of change. Um, and of course, Arriva Bene was relieved of duty at the end of the 2018 season after two failed campaigns to try and deliver a world championship where they had the car and this brought in Louis Camilleri at corporate level Mattia Binotto as the new team principal and they were much more in tune with Vettel in 2019 it was a much more human feel to Ferrari like it was all those years ago with Todd and Braun you know senior manager even even with the press you know you'd notice a market difference with how open they were with the press compared to previous seasons yeah, senior management was definitely not as involved as it was. Um, Arriva Bennett, actually, yeah, it was more of an us and them thing, but Matti Bonotto was much more open and warm. And he was very much a, an apparent figure in the Todd Braun Schumacher partnership as one of the uh, engineers back then. So he knew what that family dynamic was like and was able to bring that back to Ferrari. And you could see that Ferrari were much better for it um, when they made mistakes, and they did make a lot of them in, in 2019. There wasn't a culture where it's one mistake and you're out. Like, you failed me for the last time or stuff like that. It literally was, you know, you make the mistake, we go back and learn from it and try and go forward. But even though there were pressures um, behind them still, but it wasn't as bad as it used to be. It was much more forgiving than it was. But unfortunately, by then, serious questions were being asked of Vettel after crucial errors had caused him to fail to convert championship chances in 2017 and 2018. And I think... 
mentioning on that note, I think it's a good opportunity to sort of take a break on this because I think we've talked a lot in this first half about how there were external forces, if you like, at Ferrari that were causing issues for Sebastian Vettel um, and making it seem like it wasn't his fault. But we'll, in the second part, Courtney, I think it'll be good for us to talk about what um, contributing factors that Vettel had played to his own demise and Ferrari's as well um, during their time together in the second part, guys. So um, this would be a good opportunity for you guys now. If you want to grab a drink, grab something to eat quickly, we'll put it on pause. And then uh, we will see you in the second part of the DNF1 podcast. This episode of the DNF1 F1 podcast is sponsored by Lucy Camp and Jewellery. If you love handcrafted jewellery, or perhaps you're looking for a gift for a friend or a relative, or a loved one maybe, or maybe just to treat yourself. There's a sale going on right now at Lucy Camping Jewellery that will cater to your needs and allow you to support a good cause in the process. So let me tell you the plan. 28 different pieces by 28th of May, each costing £28 each, with 28% of all profits being donated to the NHS. All of the pieces will be available from the 28th of May 2020. Keep your eyes peeled for your favourites. These are one-of-a-kind pieces. It's your chance to grab a totally unique piece of jewellery as a gift for yourself, a friend, or perhaps a special loved one in your life. All jewellery are handcrafted from recycled sterling silver and reclaimed gemstones. You'll be able to see the full variety of all jewellery on lucycampandjewellery.com. And remember, this offer is only available while stocks last, so don't delay. Head over to www. Lucy Camp and Jewelry to buy your piece of 28. You can also follow her on Instagram and Facebook to find more great offers and more great jewelry from Lucy Camp and Jewelry. So hello and welcome to back to the second part of the DNF1 F1 podcast. So in the first part we were talking about how Sebastian Vettel's Ferrari dream kind of failed owing to external influences if you like through senior management at Ferrari really having more of a controlling stake in the team which really created a negative working environment and atmosphere at Ferrari that didn't really allow them to collaborate with Vettel and create this formidable partnership that Schumacher had enjoyed in the Todd Braun era which made them so sex, sex, uh, successful I should say um, between 2000 2004. So Obviously not to come across as if we're just completely blaming the uh, management. We should also look at other factors that really caused this uh, dream to really not come to fruition. And I think one of the biggest ones that we've yet to mention is Vettel having the, uh, well, suffering from the fact that he was cracking and suffering under pressure. Mm. So despite Alonso's time at Ferrari ending in disappointment, Back in 2014, um, with the car as well, Ferrari had um, a growing technical core within the team. And the team, we saw that there were personnel there that were still able to build a great car. I mean, we talked about characters like James Allison, for example, that was heavily involved at Ferrari um, during the latter end of Alonso's time at Ferrari and obviously setting the trends on what Ferrari was going to be doing in the coming years. And we saw the cars were steadily getting better. Um, whilst the 2015 car got the odd win, um, it couldn't really challenge Mercedes for a championship. It was way too early. Um, 
But they were getting braver with their technical development. We saw that. Vettel himself picking up a couple of wins in Hungary, uh, in Singapore. Singapore, and of course his first win for Ferrari Malaysia, arguably one of his best drives for the Scuderia. And it, it was only until 2017 when they had the big rules change where we started to see the first real aggressive um, conception of the t- of a Ferrari car. The 2017 model, the SF70H, um, it was a highly influential design and it pioneered the famous side pod designs that worked for Ferrari so well and so many teams copied. Even Mercedes have only now added this to their 2020 car. It's It was that good, this technical inf- innovation. Yeah. And it, it proved once and for all that Ferrari, after so many years of doubt and restrictions and trying to build a car with the shackles or the handbrake on, pun intended, they finally were given the technical freedom to build and develop a car that could win a world championship or at least compete for world championship. Um, if, I remember, if I remember rightly, my, my, my general perception of 2000, the 2017 Ferrari was it was a great race car it wasn't so good in qualifying spec. Yes, and and I'm glad you mentioned that because the 2017 car ultimately lost out to Mercedes because of the lack of qualifying modes. It was a season yeah. where a lot of people expected under the new regulations that the cars were going to be a lot faster. They were. They were much faster in the corners. Um, aerodynamically, they were more f- efficient in terms of their pace. But unfortunately, because of that, it created more drag. It created more resistance, air resistance. Um, it, it was more susceptible to turbulence when following other cars um, in their wakes. And as a result, you weren't able to follow cars very closely. This was always one of the big setbacks that people had anticipated with these cars and ultimately ended up suffering from but qualifying pace was key and Ferrari didn't really have the qualifying engine modes um, that Mercedes had. And it took it would take Ferrari until 2018 to achieve that. Um, you know, and, and the problem for Sebastian Vettel that despite having a car that could compete for World Championship, there was this ever-growing pressure from the previous seasons and the environment that he was working in that allowed to creep that he allowed to creep into his driving. Um he was fighting a volatile, trustless environment at Ferrari between himself and senior management. Um, and, and they were up against the well-oiled machine that was happy in trusting Lewis Hamilton and Mercedes compa- uh, combination. And, and ultimately, it proved too much for them. I mean, previous incidents we've mentioned in the past, Corny, Vettel's start line crash with Kimi Raikkonen in the 2017 Singapore Grand Prix uh, whilst they were first and second, which had took them both out of that race when they were really needed to get a result, and also Mercedes were Mercedes were on the uh, third row. That, that was that was a big opportunity for them, and they blew it in well. Yeah, yeah. to say the least. And Vettel wanted to cover off uh, Verstappen, and he ended up taking out his teammate, which he hadn't seen, and himself in the process. And of course, Lewis Hamilton had won that race took full advantage so you know that that's you know one of the things that really really uh, hindered Ferrari's progress and Vettel in that season and also the incident that I remember was uh, where you could really see Vettel's frustration and really bulking under pressure was when he deliberately drove or banged wheels with uh, Lewis Hamilton in Baku after a perceived trick from Hamilton from Vettel's perspective under the safety car they were. He me. <laughs> well, 
Well, exactly. Yeah, yeah. He fought that. Obviously, it was proven that that didn't <laughs> yeah. happen. The aerodynamics were just so strong that it caused Lewis to slow down so much when he was off throttle. That was, you know, the the drag coefficient really yeah. playing havoc, and it caught Vettel out. And his frustration and red mist, if you like, crept into him and acted in in a manner that in some cases would have had him ejected from the race. Of course, he got a 10-second stop-go penalty, which was the equivalent of 30 seconds. But given the way the race panned out, it cost him a race victory because of, obviously, Lewis Hamilton having to pit because his headrest um, yeah, came what, loose. What, what you know, benefit hindsight is twenty twenty in this one, but obviously Vettel would have felt a bit silly after that. But those two incidents in particular, that aggression, that red mist, that... Um, callousness in his driving where he just makes mistakes by not thinking clearly or having that focused mind that you need in a Formula 1 car to be yeah. successful those were emblematic of, of this problem that Vettel had of bulking under the pressure and well I mean I mean we, we, you could even look back to um, 2016 you know we, we mentioned it in a previous episode that old tyre raid he went through during Mexico gosh. oh well yeah I mean, for those of you that don't remember, this was the race where um, Sebastian Vettel was battling with Max Verstappen for a podium, and the old fabled Verstappen rule was still in place. And the Verstappen rule, to cut a long story short, was to prevent cars from uh, moving under braking to defend a position. Um, and by that we mean if you're trying to defend a position on the inside and the car's trying to overtake you on the outside, you move across at the last second on the outside under braking to stop the car from uh, going ahead of you. And now obviously the danger with this is that it relies heavily on the car behind you to react fast enough to brake and avoid a crash. It's dangerous driving. And the reason it was called the Verstappen rule is because this used to be a defensive tactic that Max Verstappen adopted quite often to Kimi Raikkonen. Um, and fortunately resulted in no crashes because Raikkonen was very quick to respond Um, but a lot of drivers complained and the same thing happened with uh, Vettel when he tried to overtake Max Max had cut the first corner to defend the position didn't give the position to Vettel backed him into Ricciardo, Verstappen's teammate and whilst trying to defend um, against Ricciardo Vettel had moved over slightly under braking and was deemed to have been given a penalty which robbed him of a podium finish, despite Verstappen having a penalty himself. So the reaction of Vettel was obviously he was going completely irate, was shouting and swearing all over the radio. Words and gestures. Yeah, we won't we won't replay the message. We won't mess with it. But you know, obscene gestures, even to Charlie, the, the late Charlie Whiting, at the time, um, he was that mad to the point where Maurizio Rivabene had to get on the radio to calm Vettel down just to bring the car home. Of course, Ferrari appealed, but obviously to no avail. It was moments like this in Vettel's time at Ferrari that really affected his driving and definitely uh, contributed to the lack of success Ferrari had in trying to convert a world championship under Sebastian Vettel. And this was ever more apparent in 2018. You know, where Ferrari had a car in 2017 that could have won a world championship, the SF71H should have won a world championship. I think you probably would agree with me on that one, Courtney, that that 2018 car, Ferrari under Vettel, should have won a world championship. Well, it was the closest they got to winning the championship, that's for certain, but... Oh. 
Well, from Germany, because like up up until up until Germany, things are looking relatively rosy for Ferrari. Yeah, from I mean, Germany, yeah. 2018, what a moment that was. Yeah, exactly. I mean, the, the 2018 German Grand Prix will be one that will probably resonate with a lot of fans, and the imagery that followed will probably personify. Um, or emphasise, if you like, Vettel's time at Ferrari. If there was ever an yeah. image of Vettel's time at Ferrari, it's not necessarily the crash itself, it's the the walk that Vettel did afterwards, where he has his head in his hands, he's holding back tears, the frustration pouring out, banging on the, on the steering wheel, realising that a chance to win his home race in the Ferrari colours that German fans loved so much under Schumacher and was now cheering Vettel, an opportunity to win when Lewis Hamilton was so far down the order at the time and was completely gone in an instant. And no surprise, who won that race? Yeah, Lewis, and uh, quite famously, when he just stood there with his arms out and it was pouring down the rain. Absolutely, from an, uh, an unforeseeable uh, position, really, it must be said, when he had uh, engine trouble in qualifying, which relegated him far down the order in Q2 of that race. And, you know, Ferrari had issues in their own uh, strategy and in their own tactics where they made mistakes with strategy calls. There was a lack of conviction, a lack of confidence, if you like, in the team where in, in that race itself, they had a situation where Kimi Raikkonen was ahead of Sebastian Vettel, not on the same strategy. The track conditions were changing and Vettel needed to clear Raikkonen to get a free track to build a gap. Um, and unfortunately, Ferrari waited too long. It almost got to the point where they were afraid to make that order, the team order. Team orders were not illegal at this time. They've always been in and out in terms of legal versus not legal. That's always changed in Formula One, and that will continue to change depending on how team orders are adopted in the sport. Um, tends to tends to uh, exist based on fan reaction, I find. But in this situation, it got so bad that Ferrari were so hesitant and Raikkonen himself had basically gone on the radio and said if you want me to let him through just tell me and eventually they made the call but Sebastian had lost so much of a lead to Hamilton that he had to build that lead back up on a wet track interchangeable conditions Vettel is a very solid driver in the wet but he has a very methodical approach to his driving which rarely uh, is successful when it's unsettled and in that race it certainly was and you could see all the evidence in the world of what happened when he binned it in the wall in the stadium section, banged the wheel, got out the car, holding back the tears as he was walking back. And from that point on, it, it seemed that Ferrari could not forgive him for that incident. And obviously what transpired of afterwards, of course, we should mention as well, the lack of detail and reliability of the 2018 car towards the tail end of the season as well. Yeah. Um, but then more mistakes followed. Of course, the Monza mistake as well. Uh, where they failed to convert that victory when Raikkonen was on pole. Ferrari had announced to Raikkonen that Charles Leclerc, who was driving in the Alfa Romeo, was going to replace him in 2019. And they did this on the eve of the Grand Prix. Raikkonen was on pole. He Vettel was second. Hamilton was third. All Raikkonen had to do was let Vettel go by him, keep Hamilton behind him and let Vettel run away with the win. And obviously what happens to Raikkonen happens. If he can keep Hamilton back, great. Ultimately, what we saw was Raikkonen impede Vettel, trying to overtake him, um, probably out of reaction and defiance to the news he'd been given earlier that day by Marchioni himself before his sadly death afterwards. Um, 
And, of course, Vettel had the incident where he tried to defend from Hamilton and he got sent spinning. Um, and then it happened again in Japan when he had that incident with Verstappen trying to overtake him at Spoon Curve. And this kept happening. This was way too frequent. These mistakes, um, it just kept happening to Vettel all the time. He, he just And... It just got to the point where neither Ferrari or Vettel, either side of that partnership, they, they've lost all trust um, and they weren't able to work to their strengths and form that formidable partnership that everyone thought that they were going to have. It was completely fractured beyond repair. I mean, going further in uh, 2019, of course, as we know, things changed after Marchioni's death. Arriva Bene was relieved of duties. Massi Binotto was in place. Louis Camilleri was in charge at the helm at Ferrari on a corporate level and and we mentioned before in the first part it brought this more humane nature this more trusting uh, yeah. structured foundation that we talked about that eluded Ferrari for so long uh, and it was probably one of the primary causes of them not being successful but by then all trust had been lost in Sebastian Vettel the car wasn't good either um, it must be said the 29 car underwhelmed especially when it looked so strong in the first week of pre-season testing, people thought it was the class of the field. And of course, Mercedes went and dominated that championship. Ferrari had its moments. Yeah. Um, even Vettel had his moments, of course, in Singapore 2019. Um, and towards the tail end of the season, of course, that very famous race in Canada that I st- arguably the penalty was harsh. I felt on Vettel, but it cost him another win. A mistake then, cost him another but win. Then, but then even even that race was... An example of him buckling a little bit under pressure. Exactly, yeah. As we said, and I've already said, um, the penalty was harsh, in my opinion. Mm. Um, I've seen drivers get less for more um, than that. Um, but at the same time, you're absolutely right, Corny. If Vettel had not buckled and made one mistake, and it was a small mistake, but it huge ramifications nonetheless, it cost him a victory. Because he had Lewis Hamilton covered off until then. And Lewis could not fight him towards the end of the race and beat him on track as much as Lewis would have wanted to because that's the kind of driver Lewis is. Yeah, he didn't have the straight line speed. Exactly. And Vettel could have won that race, but ultimately he didn't. Um, And it's those moments, those moments where he cracked under pressure. We never saw that at Red Bull. Yes, he made mistakes. He had incidents with Mark Webber, particularly Turkey when the two of them came together. Turkey... Uh, exactly, yeah. Um, you know, he had those moments where he made mistakes, but ultimately he was very level-headed. He had the people around him to wrap their arms around him. He had Rocco, uh, he had his engineer Rocky and Christian Horner as well, and Dr. Helmut Marco to really get the best out of Sebastian. He needed that. He had that team around him. He never really had that Ferrari, by which time... When he did, it was too late. Vettel was not the same driver mentally that he is now. And in a way, Vettel was so reflective in his abilities as a driver, perhaps too reflective, not having that ability to let go of previous mistakes and come back stronger, like so many great champions have in the past. They've all had their low moments, but they've all come back stronger. And you can argue Vettel, like Mark Webber had said, and we mentioned this before, Vettel's abilities kind of peaked in his younger years, he was still very strong at Ferrari, but on a mental level, he was not the same driver. He felt he vulnerable. He was a very different driver. Yeah. Definitely. He, f- he felt vulnerable. He didn't feel like he had that trust. He felt like he was fighting a volatile atmosphere in his own team. And by the time that that volatile atmosphere had gone, 
mentally he was not in the same place. He didn't have the self-belief. He'd had two titanic battles with arguably one of the greatest drivers of all time, certainly the best in this generation, and come up short to a point where he didn't feel like he could beat Lewis Hamilton. He might have had the machinery or might have seemed like he could beat Lewis Hamilton in a few races, but over a championship, it wore Vettel down at Ferrari. Yeah, it was was almost as if... um... Ironically, both Lewis and Ferrari got into his head. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, it, where Hamilton succeeded under in an environment of Mercedes, which trusted him and empowered him and the team to deliver everything they could and more to be almost perfect, Ferrari had to be perfect to beat them. And unfortunately, yeah. they weren't. And when they did make mistakes, that's when Mercedes were really strong. They literally put their foot on the gas, pun intended, and never lifted off. They, you know, that that's that's how it works. That's the brutal nature of Formula One. In order to win, you have to be perfect. You can, there's no room for mistakes, or at least if you make them, you have to recover very quickly. And I think on the terms of 2019, I think we, that comes to the final point. I believe in in our debate over the Vettel Ferrari dream, why we felt it was unsuccessful, uh, is the arrival of Charles Leclerc. In 2019. So obviously, as we know, Charles Leclerc, a driver protege through the Ferrari Driver Academy, um, off of the conveyor belt, you like, of the Ferrari Driver Academy. When we've seen Red Bull and Mercedes and McLaren, Renault produce so many drivers of the past, Ferrari never really hired drivers off their own Driver Academy. Charles Leclerc was one of the very first to graduate from that and eventually make it to the team. So there was so much written about Charles Leclerc beforehand in junior formula. He was so successful F2 champion, F3 champion. This guy had no team baggage, previous team baggage. He was a strong, mentally strong character, very fast, very technically gifted. You know, he, he was the sort of driver that wanted to galvanize and bring a team of people behind him. It was a breath of fresh air Ferrari for someone so young. And I remember when we first saw him in formula one, at the Alfa Romeo, he made a few mistakes in the first few races, one most notably in Bahrain, um, where he spun the car at the in during the race, which for Formula One drivers is embarrassing enough when you do it on your own like that, let alone when you hit someone. Um, yeah. And he recovered from that. He was very self-critical in his, in his mistakes, but he learned those lessons. He got the people around him to really help him extract the most he could from the car he had. And... Over time, his performances had been so successful, Ferrari couldn't ignore him. That's why they signed him in, uh, to start his second season at Ferrari, to the position he's in now. And he took no time in wrestling away that number one status from Sebastian Vettel. Not I at mean, all, mate. Not at all. As early as the Australian Grand Prix, mm. when Charles Leclerc... Uh, was trying to overtake Vettel at the end of the race when Ferrari were just doing so poor. And he kept telling the team on the radio, can I overtake him? And they told him no. And then he said, okay, well, remember this. And I think it was from that point where Leclerc himself realised very quickly that if he is going to be um, the man at Ferrari and have a long, prosperous career, he cannot wait for his time. He can't wait for Vettel to finish his time. He has to take it, wrestle it from Sebastian. And and this was Sebastian was like a wounded animal, but not in the kind where you have to be careful not to prod in case they strike. Um, it was the kind where it seemed like he had nothing left mentally. He was gone. Yeah, and in, almost disinterested. 
and Bahrain, we saw how brilliant Charles was when he got it on pole. Despite a difficult start, the team told him not to overtake Sebastian and he just ignored it and just went straight for it. And it was at that point, and I've said this so many times in the past, even on this podcast, it was at that point where Charles Leclerc had asserted dominance in Ferrari and he never looked back that season. I mean, at the Monza in Italy, he'd won back-to-back races in Belgium and in Monza after the summer break. Something that well, Vettel something that Vettel's I, never I, done. I've said this many, many times previously on the, on this podcast. That was the that that was the defining moment for me personally. Yeah, and something that Vettel's never done at Ferrari. He's never won no. for Ferrari at Monza. He's won there in two thousand and eight in the Toro Rosso, which again is arguably one of the best drives of his career. His first ever win in a car. And if you haven't seen that, I definitely recommend you go watch it. It's definitely one of the true fairy tale stories in Formula One. It's a car that should have been nowhere near, and he didn't just win it; he won it comfortably, um, which makes it ever more amazing. But that's not the—we don't see that Sebastian Vettel anymore. Um, you know, still very, very good, but on his day, like he had in Singapore last year. But that those days seem to be a lot more few and far between, rather than week in, week out that we were used to when he was at the peak of his powers. Um, and, and when Vettel was number one at Ferrari, he had a teammate like Kimi Raikkonen who was very supporting, very much a team player. Kimi had achieved what he wanted to achieve in Formula One, a former world champion, racer for, been at Ferrari three times uh, almost um, before. You know, this obviously second big stint, but he'd almost been there three times for them. And he was a very undemanding number two. Kimi was very helpful with the design of the car, very experienced, went about his business. But Kimi was never interested in a certain dominance in a team. Um, and he was not at the peak of his powers like he once was in his younger years as well. So he kind of had that with Sebastian, that kind of relationship where they got on really well together. It was never, um, never fructuitous at all between them and this was a huge shock for Vettel to see someone like Leclerc just come in so young so inexperienced and yet no fear and with so much pace and ability to boot I mean Vettel had a strong second half of the campaign that season um, after winning in Singapore and obviously taking it to Leclerc um, except for the incident they had in Brazil where they went into each other and yeah and that was yeah as embarrassing. Yeah, for me, the die was kind of cast with that yeah. one. Yeah. And Ferrari showed this in the winter break. They signed Leclerc up to a new long-term deal to 2024, which pretty much confirmed that he was their future. This was the man that Ferrari were going to build their team around for the future to go for championships. And if Sebastian wanted to stay, he would have to take, beyond his current contract, I should say, he should have to take on the undemanding Kimi Raikkonen number two role and Sebastian was never going to accept that role at all and uh, and this is kind of where we are because we're in a situation now of course we say this um, with the utmost respect and admiration for someone like Sebastian Vettel I mean he's been one of my favorite drivers that I've enjoyed watching the time for Sebastian Vettel at Ferrari people can try and remember it for different things and despite what we've talked about over the last hour where Ferrari have made mistakes senior management has had its involvement has created this uh, fractured 
environment, toxic almost, where it's... Yeah, toxic is a very good word for it. I like to use the term toxic, I've been told. Micromanagement. I think micromanagement is probably a term I would use at Ferrari for that, for that, Mm -hmm. during that tenure. Uh, under Marchioni and Arriva Ben. Now, of course, they had their ability, they had their qualities. They were homegrown, big, serious management uh, guys at Ferrari. You know, these people had the best interests of the team at heart. They were never going to go about it. Um, you know, they were never going to go about it for own personal self-interest. I mean, I've, I've, we've said on this podcast, in this episode, it's made. To, it seems that we've talked about them as if they were like the bad guys, but they weren't. It, the problem was was that they opted uh, a working environment where success was paramount and failure was unacceptable. They weren't prepared to learn the lessons um, within their internal staff. They were more prepared to hire people to get success and deliver it immediately rather than build it up organically and nurture it and stuff that takes time, stuff that they themselves had been so good at under the Todd Braun Schumacher era. And other teams, as you mentioned, Courtney Mercedes and Lewis Hamilton, it took four years since Mercedes returned to Formula One to win a world championship in 2014, or five years if you think about it, because then they joined in 2010. And Schumacher himself had put a lot of the groundwork in with Rosberg over a couple of years until Hamilton joined and then obviously success was inevitable at that team and we saw that through history and I think ultimately as I said the image that people will have of Ferrari and Vettel's partnership in my mind will be that moment in 2018 in Germany where Vettel gets out of his car after banging the steering wheel and crashing head in his hands with the helmet that he had in the German flag inspired helmet that he had walking away um upset holding back the tears frustration and you could see Ferrari from that moment had lost patience and could not forgive Sebastian for that mistake and mistakes that followed that you know this was a time where it seemed that they were going to finally break their duct after an 11-year wait for a driver's championship they were going to finally do it and ultimately came up short again in a car that should have won a championship um if not 17, definitely 18. And that's kind of where we're in this position. We say this, of course, we we say this now, and then Vettel could very easily win a world, win the World Championship this season. <laughs> I mean, imagine the headline, like, literally, that's it, credibility gone. Um, and yeah, no, we'll give up. We'll, 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 just, we'll just do something new, Adam. <laughs> yeah, that's it. <laughs> I mean, football has enough podcasts, doesn't it? We'll have to try and find something a bit... Oh, no. A different kind of niche that we could exploit into. But... I I say this as a Ferrari fan and there's nothing more that I would want than Sebastian Vettel to have one more season at Ferrari this season and win the world championship because I feel like it's something that some I've never known someone to really be as passionate and care so much about winning something despite the fact that he's already won four I know he would trade all four of those world championships to have one at Ferrari um, well, yeah, you could, you could like, like his radio messages. Whenever he got a pole position or a win, you could tell how late he was on, on, you know, on the radio. Yeah, and nothing means more to him than emulating some success that Schumacher had. Schumacher was his idol, is my idol as well. So mm. something we got in common. But oh, no, one. <laughs> but uh, so, you, you, know, you, you slowed up. <laughs> 
But that mental toughness and that mental strength that Schumacher had that ultimately went away from Vettel that he once had in his Red Bull days, Ferrari, it was just never... The writing was on the wall. Perhaps the Ferrari-Vettel partnership was doomed to fail before Vettel had turned a wheel. Um, It it seemed at the time when Luca de Montezemolo had signed Vettel that he had signed the second coming of Schumacher. That's how it was portrayed. That's how it was advertised. Everyone was excited. Yeah, see, that's, that's instant pressure. Yeah, but ultimately, unfortunately, despite the uplift in and also the upward trajectory that Vettel and Ferrari had taken, and let's not forget, Ferrari were in a rebuilding stage of their own. This was like a new beginning exactly. for them. They were hoping yep. to be braver with their technical development that we mentioned, you know, move on from their past mistakes they'd made over the four years of Fernando Alonso um, and the criticism that followed constantly like a barrage to them they had that freedom of someone that really wanted to get behind the team really want to trust them nurture them bond with them be their friend give them everything that they can as a driver to deliver and sadly it it never did could it have done if Mercedes weren't so dominant so good quite possibly but there was all there's always going to be that what if with Ferrari and Vettel especially in 2018 you know what if he didn't crash in Germany he was in such fine form after the British Grand Prix when he won that in spectacular fashion to take it away from Mercedes on the home patch and then it just subsided and yeah. completely evaporated almost in thin air. You'd almost be forgiven for thinking if you hadn't seen the early part of the season how Sebastian Vettel would lead the championship because by contrast, he was not the same man after that crash. I think we can both agree. Yeah, it was, it was, it was almost as if he had got a and the Bixers... Um, extreme here but in F1 terms it was like he had a mental breakdown after that yeah the man that stepped out and walked away from that Ferrari from that crash was not the same man that got back in Mm -hmm. um, on yeah on you know for the Grand Prix that followed so I think obviously we've cast our mind on that while we felt that the partnership between Vettel and Ferrari was was unsuccessful why that dream ultimately failed at least uh, at this point in time we never know what could happen this season believe me um, anything you never rule Vettel out, but I think there was a few more questions on the uh, Instagram poll that you wanted to bring up. Yeah, uh, that's correct. Um, you know, we so yeah, I went on um, Instagram, put up a poll, and asked people, you know, come the twenty twenty season, who would they have um, lead the team? You know, if 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 the team are in a position to win a championship, you know, given the Claire's ability. He's still yet to have real um, championship challenging experience, sound like Vettel. So that's why I asked the question: Who would they prefer in in the, in a scenario in which they're leading the championship? And uh, again, quite interestingly, it was 50-50, right through the middle. Now that is a bit of a surprise. Um, when I think of that kind of question, if I put myself in the heads at Ferrari, who mm. would they prefer? to win the world championship who do, who would they back um to compete for world championship i would expect given the news that, and what we know now that Charles Leclerc has to be the obvious option he's the future yeah. at ferrari we know vettel does not have a future at ferrari beyond 2020 may not have a future in formula 1 beyond 2020 we don't know that yet of course there are plenty of rumors going around most notably recently with Mercedes, which is quite interesting, but we won't talk about that too much. We'll wait and see what happens there. Um, that could be another episode in the making, that one. Definitely, yeah. Depending on what happens, <laughs> definitely could be another episode. But 
I yeah, as I said, I, I expect Charles Leclerc to be the man that Ferrari would back unanimously in the championship fight because he's the future of the team. Having said that, we've talked a lot in this episode and in the past about Sebastian Vettel's time at Ferrari, what has not gone well for them, what has gone well for them as well, we should mention. There has been a lot to be cheerful about as well. And sometimes I feel like the one thing that we do cite on both sides where they've both suffered is cracking under pressure, both sides, the garage and Vettel. And perhaps in an environment where Vettel finds himself in a championship challenge, because of course we know there's been a lot of time off with with the COVID-19 situation. And we know that even though that the teams have not been at the factories very long, they've only just started to return. We know that there's always going to be design concepts and things going on in the background that within the rules that could make the Ferrari and develop the Ferrari to be on a competitive level with Mercedes and make it a championship challenger. We don't know that. The situation and picture in testing is a completely different one now than it was yeah. uh, two months ago when we were, we thought we were going to be away for lights out in Melbourne. And that may allow Ferrari and Vettel to have an opportunity where they've got this freedom. There's no pressure. It's like a, like a swan song season. You can, you can go out, have free range within reason to just drive to the best of your ability, enjoy yourself. Don't feel like you're under pressure to deliver. But, because... then, but then the clerks side of the garage will have different ideas. That's the problem. Of course. I mean, we should note that. And Leclerc will do everything in his power to make sure that he is the man that wins a championship for Ferrari if he can. And I feel like... But then this is why this is why I'm kind of tied between both sides. Because I feel like the team will back Leclerc. But... I'll tell you, I'll tell you what, though. If Ferrari do indeed have the fastest car, we could well have another Hamilton Rosberg season here, you know? Very much so. Very much so. And I would love to see that. Um, but as I said before, the pressure that Vettel and Ferrari have been under, with when you take that pressure away, when there's nothing to lose, you may find Sebastian Vettel of old, uh, or at least the 2015 yeah. Sebastian Vettel, come to back to Ferrari, or the first half of the 2018 season, that Vettel come back. Um, and win an, almost an unprecedented fifth world championship, which would be lovely to see. And I would not rule it out, but I think the smart money has to be Ferrari to back Leclerc, in my you'd opinion. You'd think so. Yeah. So uh, you, I think you had one more question, Courtney, one more poll that you yeah, did. Yeah, I think, I think it's an appropriate time to um, to ask. It was a... It, it, it wasn't a, a completely serious question, but we touched on something in a previous episode, you know, particularly talking about older and younger fan bases, um, you know, opinion on Sebastian Vettel. So I, I've noticed that particularly younger people seem to have a slightly different opinion on Vettel compared to older fans. So it, it, it led me to ask this, and um, I asked, what comes to mind first when you think of Sebastian Vettel? Do you see him as an F1 legend? Or do you see him as an F1 meme? Now, much to my relief, 85% said that they see him as an F1 legend and then 15% said he's an F1 meme. So I took a sigh of relief when I uh, saw the results of that one. So (laughs) I'm actually glad that the poll came out quite, not unanimously, but quite heavily towards the F1 legend side because I think we both know that Sebastian Vettel's record proceeds and his reputation precedes him as a driver. And 
no matter what people will say about him and his time at Ferrari and what we've said about him at his time at Ferrari and how we've weighed this up ultimately is unsuccessful when you think that it hasn't delivered a world championship, at least that we know of. Um, if you play this podcast a year from now, guys, Sebastian Vettel may have won the world championship for Ferrari. We don't know at this point in time. But I'm glad because we should put a lot of respect on a career of a driver that came into the sport very young, um, you know, was very impressive in his junior career. We saw that. And there are only, I mean, let's look at the stats. Sebastian Vettel's career. He's got 54 Grand Prix wins. Only Lewis Hamilton and Michael Schumacher have more than him. In terms of qualifying, um, only Hamilton, Senna and Schumacher have a better qualifying record than Sebastian Vettel. Um, there aren't many drivers that have more fastest laps than Sebastian. His podiums are record is impressive. Even a Ferrari, his podium record is very impressive. And, yeah. and I've said on a previous podcast episode that if you look at the Ferrari drivers throughout its entire history and you look at where Sebastian Vettel stacks amongst them, he would, in my mind, be very high on that list. He wouldn't be a Schumacher or um, a louder, if you like. But he would certainly belong with the upper echelons of that group. You look at someone, for yeah, example, and, and, and I think I'll mention this as well, you look at other drivers like Rubens Barrichello, Felipe Massa, um, you know, Nigel Mansell, Alain Prost, drivers that drove for Ferrari and not won a world championship. I would argue strongly that Sebastian is definitely much higher up on that list than them. You could even argue that Sebastian is higher up on the Ferrari all-time hierarchy than Kimi Raikkonen. And Kimi won a world, his world championship at Ferrari. You could There's a very strong case, in my mind, that Sebastian was better for Ferrari than Raikkonen was, um, despite Raikkonen winning that championship. So, I think... A lo- and, and maybe uh, this is going to make me sound like a bit of a ranty old man um, I mean I'm, I'm in my 20s I'm a millennial guy so you know any of you that want to write okay boomer as much as I get it you're wrong um but you know I, I see a lot of our younger crowd that joins Formula One and a lot of young Formula One fans would have only seen Sebastian in his Ferrari days they wouldn't have seen him in his early Red Bull days when he was so successful and you'll see the memes him spinning around a lot having crashes uh the blue flag outro song that we play at the end of our podcast it's a you know i i ran and yet it was almost like well hold on you you play the outro at the end of your but we do because it's fun um but i feel that uh, if you weigh up sebastian's career in formula one it would be massively unfair to not rank him amongst the all-time greats and not respect the fact that this is a guy that despite his shortcomings at ferrari he took a huge risk leaving a team so successful as Red Bull were, like Schumacher did before him in his Benetton years, to join a project at Ferrari to, because it was a dream of his. He wanted to be a Ferrari champion. He may still do that, we don't know. But he wanted to achieve the greatest prize of all Ferrari, which would have meant any more than all of his four world championships put together at Red Bull. And you have to be inspired by that. You can't knock someone for giving it their all like he did. And nobody, in my mind, wanted to win a world championship at Ferrari more than Sebastian Vettel. And I just hope that whatever he goes on to do in his career, 
he will always be respected and acknowledged for his successes, um, and there were a lot of them, rather than his shortcomings. And if he is remembered for his shortcomings, at least remember him for the fact that he took a huge risk and put everything he possibly could. And there were, on occasions, many of them where there were days when he was successful at Ferrari. Let's not forget the Malaysia win. Um the Singapore win at the this last win at Ferrari, the ecstasy of and the emotion that he showed, how the team were galvanized behind him. He helped to rebuild Ferrari to being a championship contender. They were nowhere before. As yeah, great as yeah, as great as Alonso was, there were a lot of problems at Ferrari that Alonso in in a way did not help this it didn't help that situation. As brilliant as a driver as he was, but Sebastian did lift that team up again. He brought them up in the same way Schumacher did. So there are a lot of good things to remember about his time at Ferrari, not just the shortcomings. And I hope that whenever his career is done, that's how people remember him. They'll remember the good times, not just him spinning around every time a crosswind come his way or he tagged someone. Courtney, what are your thoughts on that one? Because I've probably said a lot of <laughs> a lot of my personal thoughts on that. Yeah, like... like... When I, when, I, when I look at Sebastian Vettel, you know you can't you can't argue with the stats. You know you you, you mentioned it yourself. Um, I I always had the belief, you know, as as a Lewis Hamilton fan, obviously I always had the belief that Lewis was his overall better driver. Um, I, I like to you know look at the stats and it, and, it, and it shows as such. But you know you 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 can't. You can't hide from the fact that he has achieved a lot in the sport, but yeah, like, no, no, no doubt there's been a massive downfall in form, no doubt. But at the end of the day, you know, the, these guys are legends of the sport, but they are human beings at the end of the day, and external e- external effects can 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 change you as a person, you know, and. It's, it's it's a shame what's what's happened um, to him, but it's not an easy place to be. Ferrari, you know, you, you you might be given a car that's up there or challenging for championships, but God, the amount of pressure that's on you if you do something, if you are too challenged for a championship for Ferrari, it takes a very strong man to do it. You know, what Schumacher did was spectacular, and he, he, even being compared to Schumacher, that alone is pressure. And I just feel that a combination of events and, and racing against a supreme combination of Mercedes and Lewis just got the better of him. And slowly but surely, he's, he's had a decline and has lost interest. So, yeah, that, that's my general opinion. And this is something that we have to remember when we talk about Sebastian Vettel, is the comparisons to Michael Schumacher. The yeah. fact that he had to compete against Mercedes and Lewis Hamilton at the peak of their powers. It's almost an insurmountable deficit to overcome. It's... It's almost like, as we said, he had to be perfect. And when he wasn't, that's when he was punished and Lewis Hamilton got the better of him. And because of those comparisons that with Vettel, that alone should be enough to make you realise the kind of driver we're talking about. In years to come, when people look back on someone like Vettel, that's the sort of driver that we're talking about. I mean, I'm going to go, I'm going to say it now, unpopular opinion, despite the fact that many people consider him to be a better driver, in terms of the all-time greats, Vettel should be considered higher than Fernando Alonso. And the one reason I can say for that, as even though, as I said, Fernando was considered to be a better driver than Vettel, 
we've already mentioned on this episode that you need to be more than just to be a good driver. Yeah, you need to be a team player. Exactly. And one thing I can say about Fernando, and we've seen evidence in every single team that Fernando Alonso has been at, that is one trait he's never had. He's never no. had the ability to build the team up when things have been difficult. Um, he's been very open with his criticism. Even when the team was strong and he wasn't given the full backing and support. It is McLaren. McLaren. <laughs> Ultimate example at McLaren. Um, that battle he had with Lewis Hamilton where, yes, granted, Ron Dennis may have promised Fernando um, you know, the world at McLaren and didn't foresee Lewis Hamilton to rise so quickly in his rookie season. But the way that that ended, the way his Ferrari tenure ended, um, you could see that this was a man who demanded a lot. And if you didn't give it to him, you it was never going to last. It was always going to end abruptly and in the worst way. And in Sebastian, you never got that. You, always, you know, you always had... Um, the intelligence, the independence, the reflectiveness, the gentleman with that, you know, the respect, the one that would support you. Um, and th- there's a lot that needs to be said for that. But uh, speaking of stuff that we've said a lot, I think we have said quite a lot on this one. So uh, I think we'll, we'll cut this one to an end, guys. So I hope you enjoyed that. Um, I certainly did. I think there's always a good debate to have. Um, and uh, who knows how this season is going to pan out. We may be talking about this and Sebastian goes on and wins his final world championship. He finally does it for five. We're not far away, you know. You know, things go to plan. We're pretty much a month away from Austria, folks. Not far away indeed. But uh, on that on that note and on that bombshell, um, it's just an opportunity to say thank you very much for listening on this podcast. Let us know in the comments what you guys think as well, of course, on YouTube. Um, let us know what you think. Do you think Sebastian Vettel's time at Ferrari has been unsuccessful? Um and if so, why do you think that is? Um, or if there's anything that we haven't mentioned. So uh, all that's left to say is, guys, is thank you for joining us. Thank you, Courtney, once again for co-hosting with me on this podcast. And as always, always contributing a lot to these debates with me. And uh, I've been Adam Burns as well. And we will see you on the next DNF1 F1 podcast. See you soon. Network.